Father God, we want to hear from you this morning. Lord, we don't care for the opinions of man. We only care for your words because your words bring life. And Lord, you know, you wrestle with the word. You, you try hard to hear from you. I try hard to hear from you, Lord, to know what to say to your people. But I know, Lord, I, I have nothing. Lord, only you have something for people. And I, and I pray, Lord, that you'd speak through me this morning, that you would touch our hearts, that you'd minister to our needs, that we would, despite my weaknesses and my shortcomings, that, Lord, you would speak to every individual, that we would be nourished, that we would be fed, that we would leave this place having heard from you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here at Calvary Chapel, we teach every word of every chapter of every book throughout the whole Bible. And that's because Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this morning, our daily bread is from 1 Samuel. We began uh, chapter one last time. We only got as far as verse 18, so we're picking up verse 19 this morning. We're going through to about verse 10 of chapter two. So we're going to include the prayer of Hannah as well. Just to remind ourselves, Israel was in a place of spiritual apostasy. There was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the priesthood had become corrupt. And we'll look more at the corruption of the priesthood next time, God willing. But we saw the rise of spiritual and moral apostasy at the end of the last few chapters of Judges at the hands of two Levites. So it's through two families of Levites that this spiritual and moral apostasy really took root. But one Samuel will tell us the story of a spiritual and moral transformation of Israel through another Levite, the last of the Judges, Samuel. Now we're seated here together as a congregation, uh, we encourage each other and build each other up. We're all trusting in Jesus this morning, I'm sure. And it's easy when we are together to worship the Lord and serve the Lord. It's much harder when we go out into our normal everyday working week. And it's then that we've got to choose to serve the Lord individually. It's then that we've got to choose to read the Bible. We've got to choose to to come to the Lord in prayer. We've got to choose to stir ourselves up in the faith. And that's when the rubber really hits the road. But the choice, the sacrifice, the life that you live can make a real impact. If you choose to properly submit your lives to Lord, to die to yourselves and live for him, you'll be amazed at what works God can accomplish through your lives. You know, when we look here, just one man, Samuel, will impact a whole nation for God. Do not underestimate the effect, the impact that you can have as one person if you are truly serving the Lord, if you're truly submitted to him. But you must choose. You must make that choice on a daily basis. And I'd, let me tell you, that choice to serve him will cost you. The price for being used by God does not come cheap. You'll have to die to things in your life. And you know, this spiritual moral transformation that we'll see throughout the book of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, this transformation of Israel, didn't start with a fantastic sign and a miracle, something incredible happening. It began with a broken woman getting on her knees and praying. 
It started with one woman, Hannah, seeking the Lord. And that's where all good works of God begin, with you on your knees, praying and seeking the Lord. All works of God are birthed in prayer. Now, Hannah was a godly woman, and she was married to a godly man, Elkanah. They went to the Lord to Shiloh every year faithfully to keep the feasts. But she had a problem. She had a thorn in the flesh, if you like. She was unable to have children. And there is a deep-seated desire within the majority of men and women to have children. I'm sure we can all identify and relate to that. And this is a God-given desire to have children. Uh, the first commandment given in Scripture is be fruitful and multiply. And do you know, when the Lord gives a command, he also gives a desire to obey that command so it doesn't become a burden or a chore but it becomes a delight and whenever the Lord gives you a command whenever he directs you to do something in life he'll give you the desire to do that as well it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an easy thing to do but you'll have the desire to do it so it's not a burden but uh, when, it, when you have a desire and that desire is frustrated who knows that sorrow is not far behind Proverbs 13 verse 12 says hope deferred makes the heart sick but when the desire comes it is a tree of life and this desire for children within Hannah uh, and it, it was compounded by the society of Israel because Israel said you needed to have a male heir to preserve the family name and to preserve the family inheritance within the land so if you were barren, if you were unable to have children, it was perceived as a curse from the Lord. So Hannah carried not only the sorrow of not being able to have children, she carried the social stigma of not being able to have children. You can almost imagine people whispering and looking at her, suggesting that she's maybe been cursed by God. And Hannah's sorrow and social stigma was further compounded by a well-meaning and loving husband who took matters into his own hands. He brought a man-made solution to a God-given situation by marrying a second woman through whom he could have children and could secure an heir. And how do you think this left Hannah feeling? Sidelined, perhaps? Second best, maybe? Redundant? Inadequate as a wife? All of the above and more, I'm sure. Then, as if matters weren't bad enough, this second wife, Penina, became a rival to Hannah and she provoked Hannah severely and made her miserable. Hannah was in a devastating state. Uh, such pain, such pain. And I'm sure we can all imagine and relate to that pain. And when you're faced with pain in your life, pain on top of pain, issue on top of issue, there are two paths you can choose to go down. You can go down the path of self-pity or you can go down the path of self-sacrifice. Let's think about Hannah. What was the, the path of self-pity for her? Well, it's, it goes something like this. My life is awful, and it's all because of being barren. If only I was able to have children, there would be no penina. If only I was able to have children, there would be no social stigma. There would be no sorrow. My husband would love me for me and I would have purpose and meaning and I would be happy if only I wasn't barren. 
And then suddenly everything is about being barren. That's the problem. And the only solution is becoming pregnant. And so if barrenness is the result of the Lord's hand, your heart grows bitter towards God. And if the baby is the solution, your heart makes that baby an idol. It's all about having that baby. That's the path that self-pity takes you down. You become embittered towards God and that one thing becomes an idol in your life. It's the same path if you have maybe an untreatable or incurable disease or if you have a life-changing disability, if you are single or if you are poor. If only I had a husband or a wife. If only I was without this sickness. If only I had money. And if you're not careful, that wife, that healing, that paycheck, that husband becomes your idol and your heart becomes embittered towards God because you do not have that thing that you envisage as being the solution. That's the path of self-pity because it's all about me. It's all about what I want, what I need, what will make me happy. And that was the danger facing Hannah, going down that path of self-pity. And we need to guard against that self-pity because it's destructive to our soul and it's destructive to our relationship with God. And it is so easy, it is the natural inclination of us all to go around because we want the best things in life. And sure enough, that person next door always seems to have what we don't have. But our life should be lived in surrender to God. It's what God wants for us that counts. So you've got the other path, the path of self-sacrifice where you start off at the same place. My life is awful and it's all because of being barren. But then you stop and you declare, but the Lord is in control. He is in command of the universe and my life is in his hands and I will seek the Lord about the matter. And the Lord is not only in control, the Lord is sovereign. Even if he doesn't grant me the answer that I seek, I will serve the Lord anyway. Because he is the Lord and he deserves my worship. And it's hard. And it's hard when you want something, when you see something missing from your life, when you're struggling with an issue. And for whatever reason, the Lord appears to say no. I remember for years struggling with being single. And it seemed as if one by one, all my friends were getting married off living the life that I wanted to live and be so easy to get bitter towards God and to perceive that that wife to be the solution to everything but I had to choose to say okay you've got me in this position I will serve you Lord even though I do not have what my heart desires what I want I will continue going to church I will continue to study your word I will continue to do what you want me to do even though it's a struggle and I never knew when the Lord, whether the Lord would give me somebody or not, to be quite honest with you. But that's the choice. That's the path of self-sacrifice. Serving the Lord regardless. The path of self-sacrifice says, I will not make my pain my idol. I will not make God answering my prayer a prerequisite, prerequisite of my service. I will lay down my life, my goals, my desires. I will lay down my desire for a baby, for good health, for a husband, and I will say, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And it's not easy. I grant you that. I'm not standing up here at the front sort of giving you some 
like high-fiving spiritual ideas, things, thinking, oh yeah, it's easy for you to say, you don't know what I've got to deal with. You will wrestle. You will get angry. And you will weep. And you will become broken over that matter as you choose to serve the Lord regardless. God will break you through that. But you know what? God will take that broken and submitted heart and he will fill you with such an anointing. He will fill you with such power and he will redeem your life in a way that you would never have thought possible and so that you can bring him such glory. And that's what it's about, bringing him glory. And if before God can use a man or a woman, he needs to break that man. That person needs to be submitted to God in the face of pain and hardship. And that was Hannah. She was broken, but she continued to serve the Lord faithfully. And so she was in the perfect place to be used by God. Hannah was a godly woman. She picked up her cross. She died to herself. She had to be broken through the path of self-sacrifice before God could use her to bring Samuel into the world. So at the annual visit to the tabernacle of Shiloh, Hannah made a vow to the Lord, and we read in verse 11 of chapter 1. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall come upon his head. Her prayer was no longer about wanting a son, uh, in a way that that son became an idol. It wasn't about her wanting her needs meant and what would make her happy. She said that she wanted a son so that she could give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Her life became about bringing glory to God. This and this is the uh, true objective of the Christian life. We have been created to give God glory. But you know what? There's tremendous joy peace, contentment and satisfaction when we fulfill that role of bringing God glory. In the earnestness of her prayer, the Lord spoke to her through the channel of Eli the high priest and in verse 17 we read, then Eli answered and said, go in peace and the Lord God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. She wrestled in prayer till she got to that place of breakthrough when Eli spoke, it was like the voice of God speaking to her and saying, I've heard your prayer, your request will be answered. You know, the Lord spoke into the situation of Hannah's life, a prophetic word that secured peace in Hannah's heart. There, at the altar of self-sacrifice, her prayer was heard. And so, verses 19 and 20. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to the house of Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son, and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him uh, from the Lord. So the family spend the night in Shiloh. Then early in the morning, they pack up their camper van, they head back to Ramah, and uh, life resumes as normal. And before they leave, though, they worship the Lord. The day starts with worshipping the Lord. That's a good way to start the day. And Hannah is no longer miserable. The burden of her soul has been lifted. The peace of God is now ruling her heart because she has reached that place of absolute surrender. Not my will, but thy will be done. Has Hannah's circumstances changed? No, they've not. 
she's still without child. Has Hannah got a child? No, she has not. But what has changed? She has prayed until that point of breakthrough and she knows that the Lord has heard. You know, it says in Hebrews 4, 9, let, uh, there, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. There is a rest for us, the people of God. And then a couple of verses down, Hebrews 4, 11, it says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. There is a place, a rest for your soul in the midst of all your pain and all the circumstances you're dealing with. If you wrestle through in prayer, come to that place of self-sacrifice. Peace can rule your heart. And in due course, Elkanah goes into Hannah, she conceives, she bears a son, and she names him Samuel, of course. And Samuel means heard by God. Every time she looked at her son, she would remember, the Lord heard my prayer. Verses 21 to 23. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. So no doubt, Hannah told her husband about the vow she had made to the Lord, that their son would be raised a Nazarite, that he would be dedicated to the Lord for the whole of his life. And we won't go there, but Numbers 30 makes it clear that if a wife makes a vow, her husband, and her husband doesn't agree with it, he can annul that vow. But Elkanah's response here is telling. Do what seems best to you, wait until you've weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. This tells us he honoured Hannah's vow. Together, together, they decided to give Samuel to the Lord. It wasn't just Hannah giving her son to the Lord, it was Hannah and Elkanah, together, husband and wife, they decided to dedicate Samuel to the Lord. Parenting is a two-person business. Every child needs a husband, as a father and a mother, and together they need to be raising that child in the fear of the Lord. You know, Hannah was under no obligation to go to the pilgrimage feasts all the while she was weaning uh, Samuel. It was only the duty of the men of Israel to go to attend. So she remained in Ramah to raise their son, and uh, she knew the next time she went to Silo, it was not only to worship the Lord, but it was to hand Samuel over to the Lord. Those, I don't know, three years of winning the child, they must have been precious time, mother and son. Psalm 127 verse 3 tells us children are a gift from the Lord. Parents, we do not own our children. They are, they are a gift from the Lord and we are merely stewards of those children until they reach an age where they can live life by themselves, until they're of an age when they can serve the Lord of their own volition. And we need to be prepared to let our children go just as Hannah was preparing to let her son go. Every mother, every father needs to be ready to give their child to the Lord. And we know what it is for the father of the bride to give the daughter away to the groom, but do we know what it is to give our child away to the Lord? 
You know, in Jewish tradition, they've got something called the Bar Mitzvah. I'm sure we've all heard of the Bar Mitzvah. And this is a coming of age ceremony uh, for boys and girls when they reach around the age of 13. And it marks when a child becomes an adult, when they become responsible for their own lives and their own actions, and when they can decide for themselves how they will practice Judaism. This is interesting to me because I think it would be good if we had something like this in Christianity. A ceremony, a point, when uh, it's, it's a time when the child knows they need to take responsibility for their faith. They need to adopt it for themselves. But it's also it would be good because it's a time when the parent knows they need to hand their child over to the Lord. Wouldn't it be good if we had a bar mitzvah within Christian circles? I've seen what it's like for a parent to hold on to their child and not let go, how it can stifle growth and it can cause pain within the parent as well. Hannah was not waiting until Samuel was 13, however. She was waiting till he was three or maybe four. She knew once the child was weaned, he would be given to the Lord. And in Israel, a child wouldn't be fully weaned until the age, three, maybe four. So she had those three years at home with her, Samuel, while Alkanah went to Shiloh without her. And when we consider Hannah not going to Shiloh for that period of three years, it occurs to me that there's a season in every mother's life when she cannot go to Shiloh because she has to nurse her child. You know, she can't come along to that midweek church meeting because she needs to look after that child. She cannot come along to the main church meeting or listen to the teaching because she needs to go to the creche or she needs to nurse her child. And you can sometimes feel as if you're missing out, as if you're not as spiritually strong as some of the other people because you're focusing upon your child. But do you know what? It's a season. And it's a season that will pass. So enjoy that season for that you have it, just as I'm sure Samuel, sorry, uh, Hannah enjoyed that season with Samuel. And you know, it's your number one ministry, parents, to your children, to bring them up in the fear of the Lord. And I'm sure that Hannah sowed as much goodness into her son, not just from her body, but from her faith as well. And I'm sure that time passed very, very quickly for Hannah. Verse 24 to 28. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. Uh, the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull, brought the child to Eli, and she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition when I, which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. So the day came when Elkanah and Hannah returned to Shiloh, and they took three bulls with them. And that must have been a bit of a journey, taking three bulls with you from Shiloh all the way to so from where they were in Ephraim to Shiloh. I don't know whether Samuel got to ride on one of them as a bit of a uh, trip, but uh, these, these bulls were required for sacrifice. Uh, possibly the first bull as a burnt offering to atone for sin, maybe the second bull for as a peace offering as a way of saying thank you, and the third bull as a fulfillment of the vow that Hannah had made. But Hannah reminded Eli, the high priest, of the conversation they had had some four years earlier and Samuel was presented to the Lord as a servant to God. And Eli received the boy to be trained 
in the law of the Lord. Now, we already know that Hannah lived a self-sacrificial life. She had already died to what she wanted and put the Lord's will first. And even though she was building up to this for three years of winning the child, I'm sure it was painful for her to be able to hand that child over. Can you imagine handing your young son or daughter over to the Lord, knowing that you're only going to see them once a year? And what's more, you're handing your child over to Eli, the high priest, who is a little bit yeah, not too sure about you, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're not even saved. This is a corrupt priesthood. Israel is in a place of spiritual and moral apostasy, really. And it took tremendous faith on Hannah and Elkanah's part to be able to hand Samuel over, but that was the nature of their vow, and they operated in faith in what they were doing. The Bible says repeatedly, the just shall live by faith. They didn't look at things physically and say, well, this was bad, that's bad, not too sure about this guy. They operated in faith and they did as Lord led them. And they trusted that the Lord would protect him and preserve him from the pollution that was around him. There came a time back in the uh, early days of my Christian walk when the Lord spoke to me about going to do some voluntary work for a year and it was attached to a ministry. And uh, I've got to be honest, my pastor at the time was a little bit unsure about it because he knew one or two things about this ministry. And sure enough, I spent a very short period of time attached to this ministry when I realized there were things dodgy about it. There was false teaching, there was false practices, there were things going on which were unbiblical and not sound. Yet the Lord had called me to do this voluntary work for a year. And you can understand the disconnect. How would God call you to go to a place to be involved in a ministry where dodgy things were going on? But I operated in faith and obedience to the Lord and I went, and it was 14 months I was there. But you know what? I learned more about discernment in those 14 months than in all my spiritual life beforehand. I was introduced to so many good teachers, not through that ministry, but through one or, people, one or two people that were actually at that place so many good teachers that I would never have otherwise come into contact with. There was an exponential period of growth in my spiritual walk as a result. You know, just as God can use Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in Babylon, God used me in that situation and he met me. He protected me and he, he provided for me. We can look with our eyes and think, well, it doesn't make sense. But if we look with the eyes of faith, it makes perfect sense. And even though there might be questions and concerns about Samuel being left in the charge of Eli, God met him there and raised him up in the fear of the Lord, invested in his life tremendously. If you are where God wants you to be, if you are where God wants you to be, God will look after you. He will provide for you and he will prosper you. Now, as I've said, this must have been an emotional occasion for both parents and child. Every parent has been given stewardship of the child, as I said, and ultimately that child does not belong to them. The day will come when you need to let your child go. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded about a story that I heard A.W. Tozer give. He was the father of seven children. Six of them were boys, and then he had a little girl. And that was the uh, daughter of his old age, he said. And he cared something precious for this little girl. 
And then the day came when she was called to go to the missionary field and he had to let her go. He had to die to his sweetheart. And you could feel the emotion in his voice when he shared that. And there's going to come a time for all of us parents when we need to die to our children. We need to let them go and hand them over to the Lord. Will you dedicate your children to the Lord? Are you prepared to let them go? No doubt it will be a difficult thing, but the best thing you can do to prepare your child is to train them up in the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of his word. You can't fight all your children's battles for them, but you can lead them to the Lord of hosts who can fight all their battles for them. That's the best thing you can do for your child, lead them to the Lord. Okay, on to chapter two. And uh, chapter one ends with a statement, uh, where are we? Very last line, so they worship the Lord there. So the nature of Hannah's worship is summed up in the ten verses of chapter two, first ten verses of chapter two, in what is called Hannah's prayer. You know, it's actually Hannah's second prayer because we saw her first prayer in chapter one. And that first prayer was done in privacy and silence, muttering underneath her breath. But this second prayer is done in public and is actually done in song, it would seem. This is set out like a song. So some people call it not Hannah's prayer, but Hannah's song. But before we consider this prayer, put yourself in Hannah's shoes. For years she has been longing for a child. At last the Lord has granted her heart's desire. Now three years into her son's life, she hands her son over to Eli. If this was you and your son or daughter, how would you feel? There'd be sorrow, perhaps. There'd be an emptiness, an uncertainty about the future, even though you knew you'd done the right thing. So what type of prayer would you expect with those sort of feelings inside? Would it be maybe a tearful lament? Would it maybe be an anxious cry of help? Cry looking for comfort? How did Hannah begin her prayer? And Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She starts, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Not an ounce of sorrow or sadness in her whatsoever. She rejoices in the Lord in the face of potential pain inside of her. And you know what? This is something that the world cannot relate to. Uh, and the rejoicing in the face of pain. And that is because the worldly person is ruled by their soul. They're a soulish person. If their soul is sad, they are sad. But the spiritual person is ruled by the spirit. They're a spiritual person. So even if their soul is sad, they can still rejoice in the Lord because the worship is ruled by the spirit. True spiritual worship is not dependent upon our circumstances, it is dependent upon God, who is never-ending glorious and who is always worthy to be praised. That is true spiritual worship. We might call it a sacrifice of praise. Regardless of how we're feeling, we worship and honour God. Consider Paul and Silas, incarcerated in the Philippian jail. Who knows what the morning held for them? Yet we're told in Acts 16.25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I'm sure the guards and the fellow prisoners thought they were nuts. Absolutely stupid, didn't make any sense whatsoever. But the Spirit of God causes the soul of man to exult in times of persecution 
and pain. And here too we see Hannah exalting in a time of pain, rejoicing in the Lord. She says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. What does that mean, my horn is exalted? Well, it doesn't mean that she had some sort of birth, birth defect and had a horn growing out of her head. What it means is that a horn is a symbol of strength. Hannah is stating that she has received strength from the Lord. He is sustaining her and upholding her in this situation. And this is the secret of the Christian life. We sacrifice ourselves to the Lord and he upholds us by the horn of his power. And then she says, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Who was Hannah's enemy? Anybody? Who was Hannah's enemy? Penina. Yeah, Penina. She had provoked her and made her miserable. Perhaps the community she was living in was a bit of her enemy too because they'd talked about her being cursed by God. I don't know. But Hannah was able to smile at her enemies because of the God of salvation. Not the smug smile of victory, but a contented smile of peace. The Lord was at work in her life and had held her soul. Verse 2. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. So she declares the, the holiness of God. No one is holy like the Lord. She declares the incomparability of God, therefore there is none besides you. She declares the dependability of God, nor is there any rock like our God. Her focus is completely upon the character of God. And when you've got nothing else that you can praise God for because your circumstances are so difficult, you can always praise and worship God for who he is, for his character. You know there are four types of prayer? Petition, thanksgiving, confession and adoration. I can never remember them. The way to remember them is there are please prayers, thank you prayers, sorry prayers, and I love you prayers. That's what we teach in the Sunday school. Four types of prayer. Please prayers, thank you prayers, sorry prayers, and I love you prayers. Now she's not asking for anything, so there's no please prayers here. She's not saying thank you, because how can she thank you that she's lost her son? She's not saying sorry, because she's not saying anything wrong. All she's saying is I love you. All she's doing is giving adoration and worship to the Lord. Sadly, this type of prayer is often neglected in our lives. We're quick to come to the Lord and say, Lord, please can you do this for me? Please can you do that for me? Lord, I'm sorry I've messed up again. And if we're really good Christians, we might say, oh, thank you, Lord, for the church this morning. Thank you that whatever. How often do we just say, I love you, Lord? How often do we just worship the character of God, extol who he is, exalt his nature and his character. I was challenged about that this week. And I've been trying more to speak about the character of God, to exalt him in my life, to speak of who he is, to give him adoration. And you know what it does? It lifts you up out of your circumstance and situation, and it lifts you in the heavenlies. And it might be that you want God to speak to you about a certain situation in your life, and you're not hearing his voice. Take your eyes off of your situation, your circumstance. Focus it upon the Lord. Give him that praise. Exalt who he is. Lift up his character. And it's amazing how he can shift your focus and give you insight into your life and show you the things that he wants you to see. And once he starts showing you the things he wants you to see, all the other issues and circumstances seem to just fall into line and you just know what the right thing to do is. We need to introduce adoration into our prayer life. It will transform us. 
verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So here I suspect Hannah has Penina in mind once more. Talk no more so proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth. Penina had spoken proud words, arrogance had come from her mouth, as she had gloated over Hannah's barrenness. Now these words would cease because the Lord had intervened in Hannah's life. And she declares that the Lord is the God of knowledge. And in his knowledge, God weighs the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. He had weighed Peninnah's heart and found it proud. She had weighed Hannah's heart and found it humble. And she had ruled in favour of Hannah. What would God find if he were to weigh your heart? Would he find pride or humility? Verses 4 and 5. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. So this is more than just prayer. This is poetry. As I've said, this is a song as well. And the Hebrew idea of poetry is different to ours. Our idea of poetry is that things have got to rhyme. It's not so much words that rhyme in Hebrew poetry, but it is ideas that rhyme. It's a repetition of ideas. That's the idea of, in Hebrew poetry. So, and the idea being repeated here in these verses, four and five, is a reversal of fortunes. So the strong have become weak, and the weak have become strong. The fed have become hungry, and the hungry have become fed. The one without children has risen, the one with children has declined. And it's talking about a reversal of fortunes. And no doubt it is talking about Hannah and the experience in her life. Her fortunes have been reversed. But of course, the situation in Penina's life has been reversed as well. And not only that, it speaks about the transformation in our lives as well when we become believers. Our fortunes are reversed. We were once going to hell, we're now going to heaven. We were once lost, now we are found. We were once blind, we now see. We were once dead, now we are alive. That is the evidence of God's work in somebody's life, a reversal of fortunes, a transformation. Hannah had undergone a transformation at the hands of the Lord. And you know, verse 5 is telling, even the barren has borne seven, and, the, and she who has many children has become feeble. So this is not only prayer, it's not only poetry, this is now prophecy. Because when we get to verse 21 next time, we will see that God blesses Hannah with many more children. The one thing that Penina put Penina in a place of strength will no longer be there. She'll become feeble. So now, without almost knowing it, Hannah's speaking prophetically about what's going to happen to her life. Verses 6 to 8. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. So this theme of reversal of fortunes continues, but it now develops to illustrate the Lord is sovereign over creation and over mankind. And it's in his sovereignty he orchestrates this reversal of fortunes. It's in his sovereignty he oversees the affairs of man. He is the one who makes rich and poor. He is the one who kills and makes alive. 
You know, David said in Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hands. And you know, men delude themselves that they are in control of their lives. We're not in control of our lives. Men delude themselves that they are the masters of their own destiny. We're not the masters of our own destiny. The truth is the Lord has defined definite boundaries for our lives. He chooses when we are born and he chooses when we die. And he can order our affairs so that we're rich or we're poor. Our times are firmly in his hands. And in this, Hannah acknowledges that she was in a sense dead, but the Lord has made her alive when she conceived. That she was poor on, in the dust, on the ash heap, but the Lord made her rich and raised her up to sit amongst princes. The story being discussed here is, of course, a rags to riches one, and this is Hannah's story. Well, this is our story too, rags to riches. We were in the poverty of our sin, and then we met Jesus, and he blessed us with the riches of salvation. We were on the ash heap of a worthless, worthless life, and then we met Jesus, and he raised us up in Christ into heavenly places. Uh, second half of verse 8. For the pillars of the, of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, and the wickedness shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So Hannah now exults in the supremacy of God. The entirety of creation stands on pillars he has erected. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. The Lord reigns supreme over all mankind. And we operate in terms of our daily lives, don't we? In our tiny little world. But the Lord operates in terms of the whole world, the whole of mankind. And the whole of creation is in the palm of his hand. And from this position of absolute authority, we are told... He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silent in darkness. He will guard your feet. He will guard your ways. He will guard what you're doing. He will guard your lives. He watches over you. He who holds the creation in the palm of his hand watches over your lives, your everyday contentions and dealings. Hannah holds the perspective of eternity in her heart. And that's what happens when you shift your focus wholly upon God. He gives you a wider vision, a wider perspective. It's the right of God to choose whether man goes to heaven or hell. And it's this perspective that has a true sanctifying effect upon her soul. She recognises the final destiny of man. And you know what? A clearly defined understanding of the gospel, of heaven and hell, and of God's end-time plan for mankind has a real sanctifying effect upon our lives. It eliminates that wishy-washy, weak Christianity from the soul of man and it injects a true God-fearing, firmly defined, strong faith in the soul instead. She understood what the future holds. She had her end times down and sorted. She knew where she was heading and it affected her prayer life. Do you realise that? If you have a clear understanding of the end times, what the future holds, of what God's going to do, who he's going to send to heaven, who's going to send to hell, it affects your prayer life, it enhances your prayer life, it gives you more hope, it has a sanctifying effect upon your soul. But I tell you, if we're not clear upon what the gospel is or the way of salvation, if we're not clear upon heaven and hell or the end times, your walk with God will suffer. And uh, we read there, 
uh, end of verse 9, for by strength no man shall prevail. Hannah knew the strength of man fails. The strength of Elkanah did not prevail, did it? It just brought a penina into the situation. Her strength to endure hardship did not prevail. She needed the Lord to save her. And many think that they will prevail in the day of judgment. I'm a good person. I think I'll go to heaven when I die. I don't trouble God and he doesn't trouble me. Whatever I've done wrong, I'm man enough to take the punishment when it comes to it thinking that their strength will prevail in the day of the Lord. It will not. You fool. You fool. You're relying upon your own goodness, your own cleverness, your own strength, when the word of God declares, for by strength no man shall prevail. Your strength is not good enough. It will not. It's not. You need the strength of God. You need the power of God in your life. You think you're acceptable to God when in reality you're an adversary of God if you're relying upon your own strength. And what does it say about the adversary? The adversary of God, of the Lord, shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. You start trying to operate in your own strength, your own wisdom, your own power, you've got God as your enemy. Lean upon God, rely upon him, have him as your ally. You know, life carries few certainties, but one thing we can be sure of, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, as it says there. And you see that depth of Hannah's Bible knowledge, that clearly defined understanding of judgment in the end times. She was no superficial Christian. She was hardcore. She was hardcore. And then our final verse. Um, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. Now, what is significant about this? reference to the king well it was at a time when there was no king in the land who was she talking about there's no king in the land so what, what, what does she mean when she says he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing well again we see this prophetic anointing on Hannah as she's praying and the Lord has shown her that a king is coming and not only that this king will be empowered by the father he will be exalted and he'll be anointed a king is coming, he'll be exalted by the Father, he'll be empowered, and he'll be anointed. And you know, a key principle when interpreting biblical prophecy is the principle of double fulfillment. I've spoken about this before, some of you were here, some were not. But this principle of double fulfillment says that when a prophecy is given, it has a near fulfillment, usually within the lifetime of the person prophesying, but it has a far fulfillment uh, beyond the life of that person prophesying some point in the future. And that's what I believe we've got going on here, the principle of double fulfillment. Um, the near fulfillment is talking about King David. The Lord is showing her that there is a king coming and this king will be anointed by God, will be empowered by the Father and will be exalted over all Israel. But then it has a far fulfillment and it's talking about King Jesus, who is God's anointed who is empowered by the Father. We know that the Spirit fell upon him at his baptism and he will be exalted over the whole world when he comes to reign upon this earth at his second coming. See what happens? This woman has a sacrificial life. She lays down her life. She comes to the Lord in prayer. She doesn't pray from herself. She just praises and exalts and honours God. And look at the things that God is showing her, revealing her deeper revelation about Jesus and what the future holds. I said at the beginning, 
that um, Samuel would uh, transform Israel, turn, bring, bring transformation to Israel, spiritual, moral renewal. But it all began with Hannah on her knees. Look what being upon your knees can do. We need to be people of prayer. And this term, uh, and exalted, the horn of his anointing is interesting. That term, his anointed, quite literally means his Messiah, which in the Greek is Christ. Hannah is receiving a phenomenal revelation here, or because she bowed her knees. The longer I am a Christian, the more convinced I become that we should not be seeking some special anointing for a powerful ministry, but that we should be yielding our lives more fully to God, spending more time in prayer, being faithful, being humble. That's where revelation comes from. That's where power comes from. That's where we can be of service to the Lord. And that's where we can bring him glory, which is the reason for which we've been created. Let's all endeavour to be like a Hannah. Amen. Father God, please teach us to pray like Hannah. Please help us to exalt you, your character, to give you glory. Lord, help us to be willing to lay down our lives in the face of adversity. And please anoint and fill us all with your Holy Spirit as we go forward into this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.